Okay, we'll be reading Hebrews 13, 1 through 17. Oh, and you may stand. Let brotherly, brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Marriage is honorable, honor, honorable among all, and the bed is undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not been profited, which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good, to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Obey those who rule over you, and be submissive, submissive. for they watch out for your souls, as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Would you pray with me this morning as we begin our study here in Hebrews 13? Father, I thank you for your great faithfulness. You're faithful to all generations. You are mighty, you're exalted, you're seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Thank you, Father, for exalting your Son. You alone are God. There are no other gods besides you. As we open your word here to the final chapter of of Hebrews this morning, I want to say thank you for giving us such a helpful book to bolster our faith. We're grateful for the lessons taught and the encouragement gained through the reading and studying of Hebrews. And coming to the end of the letter, you've moved the writer to say some final words. I pray, Lord, this morning that you would give us ears to hear these words, to be attentive to what you have to say. You leave us here with some pointed exhortations and warnings. So we pray that by your enabling grace, we would faithfully and diligently adhere to the instructions you've set forth. Having been instructed on the race of faith and having just been told that we are recipients of a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us now come humbly before you, listening for your final words of commissioning. Father, we come before you this morning and just want to express to you, here we are. We ask that you would make of us what you desire for us to be. For your glory and for your honor, we pray. Amen. On my way to a game yesterday, 
I was passed by on the other side a long line of, of cars with flashing lights and orange flags in the windshield. Several cars in my lane, we pulled over and we stopped as the vehicles came by on the other side of the road. They were en route to a burial site, no doubt. Someone had died. And this someone had an abundance of followers heading to the gravesite. Some two dozen motorcycles. I don't know if this person had like was part of a motorcycle group, because there were all kinds of motorcycles in addition to cars that were flashing lights, had the orange flag and the windshield. My thoughts go back to the numerous friends and family making their way to this particular burial site of this person that they knew very well. This person, no doubt, was loved by many, cherished, called friend by some, perhaps a dad, perhaps a mom, perhaps a brother or sister, I don't know. Once at the grave site, they would most likely see a casket lowered back into the ground. But before the body goes back into the ground, back to dust, the people would gather to probably hear a final word. A scripture. A note of encouragement. A prayer. Some final words to bring to closure the life of this one who had died and now is about to be laid to rest in the ground. A sobering moment it is. A time to take inventory of life itself. The final words are spoken. We've come to closing chapter in the book of Hebrews. And the writer has been carrying us along, showing us along the way the wonders and the grandeurs of Christ, the Messiah whose covenant is better than that of the first covenant, He's been shown to be better than the angels and better than Moses and better than Joshua. Better than the blood of bulls and goats. His death is deemed better in light of what it offers, in light of what it provides. And the writer has given us a picture gallery of faith. And he's shown us numerous examples and outcomes of what faith in this Messiah of the new covenant looks like. The writer turns a corner in Hebrews 12, calling us into action. Let us, therefore, run the race. Likening this life of faith to a marathon, that of endurance. And the call is to run, looking unto Jesus. The call is to run, considering, thinking much of Jesus. The call is to run, listening to Jesus as we run the race. And we found out that discipline is part of this journey and that the Father disciplines us along the way because He loves us and He desires to have relationship with us, chastening us as He would His own children for our profit that we might become partakers of His holiness. And He's reminded us that we are recipients of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Things of this earth are going to be shaken and removed, but the kingdom of God inaugurated by this Messiah will remain. And the message at the end of Hebrews 12 is, see that you do not refuse Him who speaks. Back in the day, you see, in chapter 1 reminds us of this. 
Back in the day, God spoke to the people through the prophets. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by whom? By his son. He's given to us his word of truth. And he's poured out his love in our hearts through the promised Holy Spirit. And listen, he still speaks today through his word, through his spirit. In Hebrews 13, as I was thinking about that picture yesterday, Hebrews 13 puts us in the procession of vehicles and cars. We're en en route to the grave site. We're preparing to hear some final words. What we have before us in Hebrews 13 are the final words of God given to the writer, moved by the Holy Spirit. Some final instructions. One final chapter. This entire year, church, has been spent predominantly in the book of Hebrews. We're in the month of November, the 11th month of the year. We've spent almost an entire year in this book. Wonderful doctrine. Excellent teaching in here. Connecting the dots between the old and new covenant. Showing how the animal sacrifices of Judaism foreshadow the realities of the perfect Lamb of God to come. Hebrews is the one New Testament book that helps explain the Old Testament for us. It provides insightful commentary on the why behind all the blood sacrifices and moves us forward to to see the the all-sufficient why behind the blood sacrifice that atoned for sin once for all. The book of Hebrews does that for us. So over the course of these next few weeks here in November, as we conclude the book of Hebrews... Consider this an exercise of closure to what God has to say through the writer to not only his first century audience, but to his church today. One more chapter filled with final words. What we have here are not throwaway words. This is, this is not just come to the end of the letter Um, what he had to say was really, he said what he needs to say, and now these are just tossed in words. Listen, there are no tossed in words in God's word. It's all profitable, amen? It's all profitable. And these final words relay some timely instruction. Very timely instruction to the church today. For practical handles... Chapter 13 has a lot of practical handles, okay? I know a lot of times we like to look for, well, what is something I can hold on to? The writer here is going to give us a lot to just hold on to. Very practical stuff to get here in chapter 13. Some practical handles on how to live by faith in a world on the lookout to stifle the Christian voice. We live in that kind of world, don't we? That's the world we live in. We're going to look at Hebrews 13, 1 through 6 this morning. We'll take 7 through 17, Lord willing, next week. And then we'll finish up the 27th, looking at 18 through 25. I'd like to separate the text today into two parts. Really, verses 1, 2, and 3 go together. We'll put them together. And 4, 5, and 6, we'll put them together. And as we consider the final words of the Lord in this book, I believe he would exhort us in this manner. I'm going to give you two words, two words to think about this morning from the passage of Scripture. The first word is shine. Everybody say shine. And the second word is stand. Okay, good. Shine and stand. Those are the two words that I want us to hold on to this morning. As we look at verses 1, 2, and 3. I want us to consider shine. And as we think about the the call to shine, 
I want to give us just a few scriptures to to hold on to here. Maybe some familiar ones to many of you. In Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 12, Paul says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And he goes on, he says, do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a, listen, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. Did you get all of that? That's, there's a lot of really good things there in that verse, those verses. Paul is talking to the church in Philippi. He's encouraging them, helping them understand that you are in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Friends, we live in the same kind of generation, don't we? We're in the midst of that generation. And then he says, among whom you shine, it's almost a given that you, being in Christ, are called to shine in the midst of that kind of environment. And listen, when you're shining in the midst of that kind of environment, you are going to stick out. People are going to notice you because you're following Christ. We shine as lights in the world holding fast the word of life. His word. That's what makes us shine. That's, that's the shine effect. Is the word in us working through us. That's the shine effect. Ephesians 5, 8 says, For you were once darkness, but now... You are light in the Lord. Did you hear that? You're light. You are now in Christ. You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Listen, he's called you out of this darkness and he has transported you into the kingdom of light. How dare us not shine? Jesus himself in Matthew 5 writes these words. He says, you are the light of the world. Jesus said this. He says, this is who you are. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lamp stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light So shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let your light shine that people might see and not do this to you, but look to the Father. Do they see Christ in you? Let your light shine. In their book, Living Among Lions... David and Jason Benham speak to the significance of being light in a world of darkness. Love this. It says, when have you ever heard someone going to bed ask, could you turn on the darkness so I can sleep? No. Instead we say, can you please turn the light off? Have you ever opened a closet door, watched all its darkness escape... Fill the room and overshadow the light? Never. Rather, the light from the room invades the closet and overcomes its darkness. That's just the nature of light. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. John 1 verse 5. So darkness is not the real problem today. The problem is the light has been turned off. Did you hear that? I think that's pretty significant. 
But for that very reason, this is the greatest time to be alive. Light always shines brightest in the midst of darkness. All we have to do is shine the light. Shining is what we're to do if we're a child of God. A lamp is intended to shine. And shine we must if we're going to make any difference in darkness. I love those, those lines in, in that, that excerpt I just read. Darkness is not the real problem today. The problem is the light has been turned off. So when we look at the text and we see verse 1, not very many words in verse 1. If you're looking at your Bible, hopefully you have your Bible and you're looking at it. Chapter 13, verse 1. It's a short verse. Let brotherly love continue. So here's where we're going to shine. We're going to shine love. That's the first thing. Shine love. Let brotherly love continue. This is the Philadelphia kind of love. And the city of Philadelphia, by the way, needs to understand this kind of love. I think they missed out on this kind of love of late. Philadelphia. It's one of uh, several uh, renderings of love in the, in the original language. This is a, a, a fondness uh, toward a brother. Uh, this is a, an affectionate kind of love. Uh, brotherly here actually has in mind from the same womb. And, and out of that, um, um, one of the things that's, that, that's interesting here as we look at the text, it sounds like the, the church to whom this letter is written, sounds like brotherly love had been going on. Notice the exhortation is to let it continue. Let brotherly love continue. Oftentimes when you see an exhortation, there's something Happening that might be in the initial stages of, uh, you remember the illustration of clogging the conduit from a few weeks, but months, but months back. There might be something happening that's on the verge of stopping this, and so there's an exhortation to say, "Hey, don't lose this. Keep on doing it." In this case, let brotherly love continue. There may very well have been some signs that this brotherly love was in jeopardy of not continuing. Therefore, a word is extended here to see that such a love does continue. Uh, West, in his commentary, he says, In the general decay of their faith, tendencies to disown Christian fellowship had become apparent. In fact, if you flip backwards maybe just a page in your Bible into chapter 10, you see a little bit of a sign of this. Chapter 10, 24 and 25, and let us consider one another in order to what? In order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. See, there were some who were forsaking the coming together. But the exhortation here is to come to exhort one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. It's important for us to understand the Bible instructs us to walk in love. We're to shine love. We're to walk in love, Ephesians 5. We're to put on love, Colossians 3 says. We're to let love be without hypocrisy. We're called to be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor giving preference to one another. That's Romans 12, set in the context of the church. Brotherly love recognizes the bond that we have together in Jesus Christ. Brotherly love sees the person that's seated down the row from you, behind you, in front of you, as a family member in the body of Christ. We need to hear this brief exhortation in verse 1. We must not forfeit the richness that comes from being in Christ if we do nothing else as a Christ follower, we must shine love. Love. Paul talks about love in that great trio, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. All sermon could be preached on this subject of love, shining love, what it looks like to shine love toward one another. 
We're to love God. We're to love the brotherhood. Shine the love of Christ for all to see. We shine brightly when we shine love toward our brothers and sisters. People are drawn to light. Listen, Christ died that his people might walk in step with one another, shining love, revealing the sacrificial nature of their master and their savior. As we look at this verse in the Bible, I would ask the question, are you shining the love of God in your life? Is it apparent in your life? Are you shining love? Do you see a pattern of settling for lesser things rather than considering ways to shine love toward the brethren around you? Listen, it's hard to shine love when you are exhibiting and shining deep down a bitterness of some kind. Some of you in here may have that. A bitterness, a hardness. Some kind of toxic. That's internally, it's weighing you down. It's hard to love the brethren when there's something not right with your heart. When your mind's not being renewed by the word. It's hard to love. Let brotherly love continue. Shine love. Look at verse 2. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so some have unwittingly entertained angels. Here's the second thing we're going to shine, called to shine. Not only love, but we're going to shine hospitality. Shine hospitality. Hospitality is typically set in the context of love. When you, when you see hospitality in the scriptures, it's oftentimes set in a context of love. We just talked about love. It's set in that same context right here. Where there's no love toward the brethren, there's probably a shortage or an absence of hospitality as well. They go hand in hand. They complement one another in the scriptures. 1 Peter 4, 8 and 9 gives us an example. Above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. They go right here, right here, hand in hand. It's a call, it's a command. Be hospitable. It's not an option. Romans 12, 13 in the list of things that the follower of Christ ought to be about doing, verse 13 of Romans 12 says, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Hospitality was regarded by most nations of the ancient world as one of the chief virtues. The Jewish laws... Respecting strangers and the poor, they're framed in accordance with the spirit of hospitality. And we could go down a whole list of people and examples from Scripture that showed hospitality. You think about, I love the one uh, that's given to us from Elisha. Remember, remember how they built, they, they actually added on a room so that he could hang out. The man of God could just hang out there with him whenever he traveled, by the way. If you think about and you really are reading the scripture through the lens of hospitality and see how often people are bringing other people into their home, there are quite a lot of examples of this in the scriptures. In Matthew chapter 25, 31 to 46, Jesus delivers one of his parables set in the context, and oftentimes we read this in the context of a parable of judgment, which it is. And yet the parable has something to say about this subject of hospitality as well. Without reading the entirety of the parable this morning. There, there are uh, the sheep, it's the parable of the sheep and the goats, right? To give you a little context of that parable. But on one hand he says, I was a stranger and you took me in. You took me in. You didn't just take that stranger in, you took me in. Jesus speaking. I was a stranger on the other hand, and you did not take me in. On one hand, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it for me, Jesus says. 
inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. If there was anyone who understood the language of the stranger, it would have been the Jewish people. You see, because God is reminding them quite often in the Old Testament of the fact that they were strangers once in the land of Egypt. Countless number of times he comes back to, remember, you were a stranger. Remember, you were a stranger. Leviticus chapter 19 gives us a picture of that. Verses 33 and 34. He says, and if a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. It's the the why behind we are to show hospitality. For you are strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God, he says. Shine hospitality. The text seems to indicate that by doing so, there are rich blessings and rewards associated with it. How many of you this morning can attest to the fact that having people in your home has blessings and rich rewards associated with it? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I was reminded of this as I was thinking years ago. We had a a missionary couple into our home. I still, from time to time, think, think about these two and wonder what the Lord's doing in their life nowadays. They're missionaries in Africa. Uh, Enoch and Lydia Nyador. Just wonderful people. Uh, love them both dearly. Uh, didn't have a great uh, length of time to get to know them, but they, they were at our service on that Sunday morning, and we had them over to our home for lunch uh, for a brief time. They had to catch an airplane, but we were able to have them in our home for just a short snippet of time. And I found out doing a little uh, behind-the-scenes uh, legwork that, that Enoch uh, enjoyed playing ping pong. It was something that he enjoyed doing, and he really hadn't had much of an opportunity to do that. Well, I had a guy in the church at the time who had a ping pong table. We delivered it, set it up in the garage, and after lunch, I wanted, before he left, I, I just wanted to surprise him and, and just be an encouragement to him. So we walked out to the garage, and he saw this ping pong table, and his eyes lit up, and we got to play uh, ping pong for a few minutes, and and just a blessed time. Lydia was such a, a blessing uh, to me personally, I know to my wife, and just a lot of the things we learned in those few moments with them at, around the table uh, was such a blessing. I remember uh, going back into my office after Thanksgiving break. This was, they, had, we, they were at our church just before, a week or two before Thanksgiving. After Thanksgiving, I remember returning to my office and I remember a voice message, and it was from Enoch. He left me a voice message on the phone. And to this day, I can, re- I can remember hearing his words. And it went something like this. Uh, Pastor Steve, in his own accent, uh, I wanted to call and thank you for the opportunity to visit you and your family. He said, our time in your home was a mountaintop experience. And you know... I was thinking the same thing. The two of them being in our home was a mountaintop experience for me. You never know. When you open your doors to people, people in the church, friends, family, people who maybe don't know the Lord, people who are travelers and you're providing a place, you don't know. That's what the text says. Don't forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. You remember back in Abraham, I think this is probably referencing Abraham back in Genesis chapter 18, or or Lot in chapter 19. Remember Abraham's entertaining the three strangers from the Lord. He was entertaining them. The, The word entertain has in mind a different connotation in our world today. That's why I think using the word hospitality is a little bit, a little bit better, maybe a little clearer for us to get and grasp. Shine hospitality. You never know what the Lord will do through opening the doors of your home. I do believe great blessings await. Listen, when we open the door of our home, we are allowing other people to see 
what goes on in our home. Some people choose not to open the doors of their home because they're fearful of what other people might see. Friends, we need to open our our doors to others that they might see the light of Christ. Around the table, sharing a meal together. It doesn't get a whole lot better than that. Sharing the life of Christ with one another. That's what we're called to. And it's not just the elders. Paul tells Timothy that the elders are to be hospitable. Yes, it's true. But so is everyone else who has the name and bears the name of Christ. You know, some people are a part of the church today and they wonder, well, how can I serve? How can I be a part? I just don't feel like this. Listen, how about open your door to the body of Christ? That'd be a good starting point. Be hospitable. Shine hospitality. Assess your own hospitality. Is your door open or closed? Are you forsaking the hospitality that's called for in the word? Look at verse 3. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them. Those who are mistreated since you yourselves are in the body also. Here's the third thing we're going to shine from the text. Not only love, we're going to shine love. We're going to shine hospitality, but we're going to shine compassion. Compassion. The Hebrews are exhorted to remember their brethren who have been in prison. Listen, they're in prison not because they're criminals doing something wrong. Let's be clear. They're criminals. They're they're not criminals. They're, they're, They're imprisoned due to the fact that they were shining as stars in a place that was pressuring and persecuting Jesus' followers. Remember, that's, that's really a large part of the context of Hebrews, isn't it? Pressure from the inside, pressure from the outside. Shining compassion is also connected to loving one another. Without love, it's hard to engage. It's hard to participate and share in the hardships of others. Shining compassion is engaging in the situation. Shining compassion results in caring for one another. Caring for them. The exhortation is given to remember the prisoners as if chained with them. That raises the bar just a little bit, don't you think? Do you remember the brothers and sisters in chains that way? Associate with their cause. But, but there's also here in the text an element here of suffering. These prisoners are suffering in the body. And there seems to be a warning put forth. Don't think it out of the question for you to go through this same persecution. You also are in the body. And you too, if you shine the light of Christ, will experience the sufferings that accompany one desiring to live a godly life in Christ. Many of us are familiar with the ministries that abound today. Open Doors, Voice of the Martyrs, Samaritan's Purse. Many are serving the needs of our persecuted brethren around the world. They're conduits for helping us remember them. That's what we're called to do is to remember them. It's not a remember as in, uh, yeah, I remember. No, it's a remember as in engage, participate, show compassion, care. That kind of remembering. It's a take action kind of remembering. It's the same kind of remembering that God did when he remembered Hannah. He remembered Hannah. He didn't just remember her and go, yeah, yeah, she's She's good. I'm glad I made her. No, he remembered her and he opened her womb and allowed her to bear a son. God took action. We need to remember. We need to be praying for these people. We need to be lifting them up to the Father, asking for his power and his strength to help them endure the darkness. The call here in chapter 13, verse 3, is to shine compassion. Look for ways to engage. Pray diligently. Send notes. 
get involved in a ministry that works directly with those being mistreated and imprisoned for their faith. Know what's going on and how you might be a blessing to someone going through the fires of testing for Jesus Christ. And know that you also are in the body. You are not exempt from the same persecution your brothers and sisters in Christ are experiencing. Shine love, shine hospitality, shine compassion. Those first three exhortations are connected to one another. Ways we can shine like stars in a dark world. But the text really is also calling us to stand. To stand. That's verses 4 through 6. As I was reminded of what it is to stand, I was reminded of those words in Ephesians 6. Love those words in verse 13 and 14. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore. Having girded your waist with truth, and it goes on and talks about all the armor of God. Our job is to stand. God's given and fitted us an armor to put on. And it's our job to stand. Acts 5.20 Angel of the Lord speaking to the apostles who have been in prison. And the angel says, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. The angel is calling the apostles back to the temple where they just got arrested for preaching and teaching the name of Jesus. The angel says, go stand back there in the temple. The angel doesn't say, flee for your lives, run. He calls them right back into the fray. And he says, stand. And preach these wonderful words of life. Paul says in 16, 13 of Corinthians 1, he says, watch. Stand fast in the faith. Be brave. Be strong. In 2 Corinthians 1, 24, he says, for by faith you stand. How do we stand? By faith. By faith we stand. We sing, stand up, stand up for Jesus, don't we? Ye soldiers of the cross, lift high his royal banner. It must not suffer loss. We preach Christ crucified, Paul says. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's foolishness to the Gentiles. Oh, but it's the power of God for salvation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Stand, we sing, standing on the promises of Christ my King. Through eternal ages, let His praises ring. Standing on the promises of God. To stand is to remain fixed. It's unmoved in the midst of the storm. And I think of those guards at the tomb of the unknown soldier. You ever see the picture of those guards? Wind, rain, storm, whatever, they're out there. They're standing guard. They're standing watch. They remain at their post. Look at verse 4. Marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. I believe the text is exhorting us here to stand pure. Stand pure. The New King James translates this verse as fact. Marriage is honorable among all. Holman Christian Standard translates this as a mandate. Marriage must be respected by all. The New American and the ESV translate the verse as an exhortation. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Based upon the surrounding context in which verse 4 sits... I tend to believe the latter translation is best here. Although all three translations give us something specific to consider about standing pure. It is true that marriage is honorable. God established it. He brought the first woman to that man, uniting them in marriage. It's his institution and he's defined the parameters of marriage. Fact. It's his. Right? It's his. He came up with the idea. 
He defined the terms. It's also true that marriage must be respected by all. For the text goes on to say and give the result of one not respecting God's institution of marriage. Find that at the end of verse 4. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Galatians 5 tells us that those who practice adultery, those who practice fornication, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Marriage must be respected. And it's also most helpful, especially in the day we live in, to exhort one another to stand pure in regard to marriage. People are getting married later in life these days. People are having less children these days. And overall, the picture of marriage has been far from the picture described in the Bible, which is a picture of Christ and his love for his church. When it says that marriage is honorable, that word honorable has in mind something that is held as of great price. Something that is esteemed. Something that is especially dear. Marriage is honorable. And listen, we have several marriages represented here in this body. And I want to exhort each of you, husbands and wives, to stand pure. Stand pure, husbands, and know that as you reflect Christ's love for his church, you are sending a message. Stand pure, wives, and know that as you reflect the submission of a bride, you are sending a much-needed message. The world so desperately needs to see what marriage looks like. Marriage as God has defined it. Marriage is much more than loving someone else, isn't it? God has established parameters around this thing he's called marriage. One man, one woman, for starters. Stand pure together. Love one another. As you stand upon his truth, you are shining Christ and making him known. Look at verse 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. We'll pause right there. Not only are we exhorted to stand pure, but we are exhorted to stand content. Content. And really there are two things spoken here. One of them is the negative and the other one is the positive, And they really are arriving at the same place. Do not covet. Be content. Do not covet has in mind that tenth commandment, doesn't it? Some translations say, let your conversation. When we think of conversation today, we think of two people talking. But back in the day it actually meant... Uh, your, your life, your, your manner of living, your behavior. Uh, one translation says your character. Let it be without covetousness. The phrase without covetousness, the word is interesting in and of itself. It, it's in, in the original, it has the alpha, which is a, a prefix, meaning without. It has the word phileo, which is a word we've seen already earlier about brotherly love. It's to be fond of, to be affectionate toward. And then the word arguros, which is the word for silver. So when we put those things together, we see really the translation literally has something in mind of letting your life, letting your behavior, letting your character be without the fondness and affection for money. Don't covet. Be content. And as I was reminded of being content, I was reminded of of Paul's words at the end of his letter to the church at Philippi. He says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Notice, he learned, he learned it. He learned whatever state 
To be content, I know how to be abased and I know how to bound. Everywhere in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And see, Paul came to the conclusion that he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. Don't covet. Be content with such things as you have. You see, uh, Wes says Paul was self-sufficient because he was Christ-dependent. This is key. This is pretty important. He said the word content, he goes on and talks about and applying it to the Hebrews passage that we're in. It says it means more than satisfied. It refers to the ability of the Christian dependent upon the Holy Spirit to be independent of outward circumstances. So when we read, be content with such things as you have, literally that is the things which are at present around one, our circumstances, things that are at present around one. Us Be content where you may be. Now some of you are sitting there and you're going, well, you don't know my situation. Listen, God in his word knows your situation and he's just about to let you in on something that's really, really important. Because just as you start thinking about your circumstance, that situation you are in, and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, it's easy for you to say, you've got a great situation to be in. My situation isn't all that great. Listen to what the word says. We're called to stand pure. We're called to stand content. But we get to the end of verse 5. It introduces this third thing that we're exhorted to stand on, stand in. Stand strong. We could probably substitute a few different words. Stand confident or stand bold. Any of those would fit. But if we read the text, For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, there's the word boldly. The word has in mind confidence. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? How do you stand strong? I think the text says at the end of verse 5, For he himself has said. Be content with the things that you have. The the situation you find yourself in, be content. Don't covet. How's that? How's that possible? For he himself has said. God's got something to say about this. What's he said? Well, what he says is pretty important. It's his promise, friends. This is a promise. He's promised. In fact, if you go backwards just for a second to Hebrews 10, 23, it tells us something about this God who promises. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Stand strong. Why? For he who promised is faithful. When God says something, we can put it in the bank. It's yes. When he says something, we can take it for what it says. Here he said, for God has said, he said, here's what he said. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Can I give you an emphasize for you in the original language? I don't like to give a ton of original language things only when they are helpful, only when they fit. Only when they might be a good takeaway for you. And I think this is a good takeaway. At the beginning of this promise, I will never leave you. The rendering is such that it would be like this. I will not, I will not leave you there's a double negative there he's emphasizing he's not going to leave you oh but it gets better because the part that comes right before forsake it goes something like this i will not i will not i will not three of them five times he's telling us he's not going to leave us or forsake us What do you think he wants us to get? You can be sure of this. You can put this one in the bank. I am not going to leave you. I am not going to forsake you. You can be content with your circumstance where you are because I am not ever going to leave you. 
Friends, that is wonderful to realize and know, isn't it? That's what he's promised, to never leave us nor forsake us. Those are the words that we remember from Deuteronomy. God speaking those words to Moses about not leaving him or forsaking him. And then Moses speaking the words to the people. Joshua in chapter 1, remember he receives those same words. I'll never leave you or forsake you. It's upon the basis of his promises that we can stand strong. When we understand that then, verse 6, verse 6 is helpful. So we may boldly, we may confidently say, absolutely we can do it with all boldness and confidence. Because he's promised. He's told us. He's going to be with us. So we can boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. I will not be afraid. Psalmist says, when I'm afraid, I will what? Trust in you. In God whose word I praise. A mind stayed on Jehovah. See, when we think about some of these things that the scripture has to say, and we realize that his promises, he's not going to leave us. He's not going to forsake us. That then should cause us to be able to stand. And I believe that's what we're exhorted to. Stand strong. These are wonderful final words, aren't they? Some very helpful final words. He's not done. We'll continue them next week. Psalm 118 Verse 6, which is where Hebrews 13, 6 is taken from. The Lord is on my side. I want you to know the Lord is on your side. If you are a child, he is on your side. I will not fear what can man do to me. Jesus said all man can do is kill us. That's it. They have no power to destroy body and soul. Shine. And stand. For God is our refuge and strength. He's a very present help in trouble. God is my helper. Psalmist says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens. In the earth. Psalmist says, Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who's your hope in this morning? Do you know who your helper is? Shine. What are we to shine? Love, hospitality. What's the other one? Compassion. Stand. How are we to stand? We're to stand pure. We're to stand content. And he gives us the reason. He has said, this is how we can stand content. He's called us to stand strong then in his promise. To stand and be bold in what he's already said. He will not, he will not leave us. He will not, he will not, he will not forsake us. Friends, I just want to point you to one place as we close. One of the greatest, actually the greatest expression of that very statement is at the cross. And the moment you doubt that he's with you, you just need to turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face and be reminded of the cross upon which he died. At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light where your burden rolled away. Amen?
This is good news. This is encouraging news. And I pray it's a, it's a wonderful exhortation from the scripture for the church to hear and to walk in. Let's be sure we do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It's a good word. It's a trustworthy word. Lord, I just pray we reflect this day upon your presence with us. Your word says that you are with us and that you're not going to leave us, that you're not going to forsake us. And Lord, as a result of that, we can boldly and with confidence say that the Lord is our helper. Think about all the things that are possible in Christ as we keep those words in the forefront of our mind. I pray, Father, you would help us as a, a body here at Hope in Christ to shine brightly in the midst of darkness and to stand firmly, to stand strong, to stand pure in our marriage relationships, to stand content in whatever lot you may give to us, knowing that you're with us, knowing you go through it with us. Thank you, Father, for those encouraging words. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.